For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. What is your relationship like with self-care? I've got to say, it's not my most comfortable topic. I I feel a bit, um, how would I explain it? I'm uncomfortable with the idea of self-care. I think, I was going to say it wasn't invented. (laughs) It wasn't marketed, shall we say, as a concept when I was younger. And I feel like I'm you know what, I'm probably very much a product of what we're going to be talking about today on the podcast, this culture of hustling and defining success by how much you can do. And almost like being competitive with yourself in how hard you can work. I'm actually cringing as I say this. (laughs) But this whole idea of self care being I don't know, buy a scented candle and take out some hashtag me time. That's never resonated with me. I don't get it. But I also know that there is something much, much deeper at play here that's nothing to do with commodifying downtime. In fact, it's about questioning, forensically questioning all of that crap that we're delivered by a capitalist system that in fact works actively to stop us taking care of ourselves and taking real time out and making sense of what really matters. So yeah, that's my introductory salvo, my introductory proposition. (laughs) Let me know how you feel about self-care. I really want to know, actually. Um, You can, of course, find me as usual on Instagram and Twitter. But at the start of a new year, there's always a bit of reflection going on, right? Whether or not you're a New Year's resolution type, you're thinking about what kinds of changes you might want to make, or maybe you're thinking about what you learned last year, what went well, and what you might like to do differently. So I reckon this interview makes perfect sense for the new year mood. My guest today is Georgina Johnson. She's a British curator, writer, designer, and artist, and all round joy, actually. She's brilliant. She does a lot of different things. She's very interested in sustainability and ethics and how our systems work. And she is the author of a book of curated essays with lots of different amazing contributors called The Slow Grind, Finding Our Way Back to Creative Balance. And we met actually last year in London at an event and we recorded this podcast in her house and I've been saving it up for New Year's because I think that the topics we're discussing feel really right for you know, the kind of line that we draw when we enter a new year. And maybe we do have this capacity now to act on them with a little bit more headspace than we might have if we were in the middle of the year, shall we say. So Georgina reckons that we are beholden to grind culture, that somewhere along the line we've decided that hustling is aspirational. And she wants us to question what's behind that. How does the system work that has delivered us, particularly in fashion, a kind of landscape of unhealthy competition, burnout, fostering bad behaviour, racism, um, and and basically making everyone hyper-competitive so that they think that the only way to succeed is to be always on? And what does that do to our sense of self and our sense of well-being? And how does it affect our mental health? This is a conversation about... Well, I think it's actually about the joy of pushing back on that 
and of building new ways of operating. It's also about Georgina's own story and her experiences with mental health and well-being. And it's about strategies to, like I say, do things differently. And like she says, get back into creative balance. Make sure you listen to the end because that's where she shares some of her personal tips and lessons on this. And they are, as she says, not that difficult. In fact, we could all start some of them today. I think you're going to love this. If it resonates, please do share it on social media and with your friends and communities and tell us what you think. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press and Georgina is on Instagram. She's at Saint Lovey, S-A-I-N-T underscore L-O-V-I-E. Okay, light a candle, relax. (laughs) We're going to get into it. Georgina Johnson, welcome to the Wardrobe (laughs) Crisis podcast. Are you laughing at my headphones? I'm laughing at everything in a nice way. (laughs) I'm wearing these headphones that are giant that uh, make me look like I have a pinhead, but that's fine. Thank you very much for inviting me around. No worries. I'm glad that you could come. I know it was a bit of a trek for you, but so was coming across the world. It's actually lovely because it's a Sunday afternoon. We're sitting at your kitchen table. I've met your cat. I really love it when we get to do these podcasts in person and not through the Zoom. We don't Mm. use Zoom, but you know what I'm saying. I'm glad that we could sit side by side as well. All right, we're going to have a conversation about extending slow which is like this concept with which we're very very familiar when it comes to product Mm. fashion labels lifestyle living and yet or consumption as well I was saying before we press record I think that we don't do a very good job of extending that to ourselves and slowing down our work the pace of expectation Mm. etc all of the above (laughs) Tell us about what the slow grind means to you and that idea of, as you put it, finding your way back to creative balance. Um, So finding your way back to creative balance, I think the slow grind in general is like the antithesis to like wake up, grind, repeat, like all of that crap. Ooh, say it again. Wake up, grind, repeat. What is it? Like, something you see on a coffee mug. Something you see on a mug, <laughs> on a t-shirt. It's like those people that's like, it's all about the gains and like gym culture and crap. And it's something that I think we'd, we're around so much that we just, we're just used to it. When you said that, I haven't really heard that particular phrase, but I know exactly what you mean. But we are aspiring to that. Yeah. Um, I think it's just indoctrinated into us. We feel like we have to wake up, we have to repeat, we have to work. And um, I'm having a lot of conversations with my friends a lot recently of like, how on earth are we in a situation where to rest is like radical? And to rest is like something that you have to like bargain with yourself around. Um, And why is rest a privilege? Which is a really unfortunate position I think for us all to be in Mm. there's a lot in this I think we're going to get lots of listeners writing in writing in there's no address if you want to write me a letter but I would enjoy it (laughs) uh messaging us about this because I feel like we're all on this crazy treadmill and so many people feel pressure in different ways to deliver um juggle everything um but also this this idea that success has been defined for many of us by our output The more Mm -hmm. you can do, the more successful you are. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about that, though, is like the way that the West has characterized success and how that is kind of just like been filtered through throughout the globe. 
and that school of thought how it's been globalized and like now it's so again we feel like it's in tune with the way that we should live and um for me it's like I think about when people say the global south and like how they've become like hyper accelerated and like production epicenters and all of these places it's like I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday my friend Bella Webb who's the brilliant person and who is the I don't know her job title but she writes about sustainability at Vogue Business yes and we were talking about like how there's a lot of conversation around um like China and Bangladesh and all of these places how there's a problem from our point of view of like there's overpopulation they're doing too much they're trying out too much and maybe their point of view is that the west has had its industrial revolution and then they've done whatever it is they needed to do they colonialized all of these places and they stripped them of their resources they like robbed them blind and um, now they're like we're in a place where we can actually try and sustain ourselves um and in that way it's like it colonialism is essentially the the reason why we're stuck in this mindset all right we're going to come back to that but let me just ask you about that phrase finding our way back to creative balance so finding our way back to creative balance is is a call it's I hope the book in in general is more like a blueprint and a vision for what our world can look like when we do get back to balance understanding what balance means for like the individual but also the collective and the community um and that to me it's like it's also deeply aligned with ideas that I'm still trying to reckon with like how what is the way back and is Mm. the way back um literal like literally like pulling everything back or is it just a reformation of everything that we're doing now why is balance so important for creativity or creative output I was gonna say creative output but that feels like rushing doesn't it so for creativity well creative output doesn't necessarily mean that you're rushing like as a creative person you do put things out in the world and that's essentially what that means um for me like the whole thing came about because I was just I've me and I think a lot of people especially in my generation and all the generations before me but I can speak more so on like my generation how old are you I'm a young babe I'm in the middle I'm just at the bridge of millennial slash gen z but I would say I'm firmly millennial how old are you I'm 28 come on (laughs) um I push you because I think that we have this tendency not to want to speak about our age but it becomes a problem when we get older and then mm. everyone's scared to admit how old they are. Even me and my friends are kind of scared to say how old we are sometimes because we feel like, again, with this whole productivity thing, we should have done more by this age. And then everyone says to me, you are very really young. And I'm like, but I should be a millionaire by now. And I should have like a plan for a house and a pension and all of these things. And um, yeah, just to go back to creative balance, essentially it is... I think for me, it's more so about like coming to a balance in your mind and understanding the difference between like, or why you hold specific values, like where they stem from, like culturally, financially, like ideas around success, all of these things Mm. and how interlinked they all are. So in my opinion, like finding a way back is taking the time to slow your thinking down 
taking the time to think about why you do things and I get asked all the time like is the slow grind about like moving slowly and for me it's more so about thinking slowly how beautiful (laughs) it's a very appealing idea it's also a privilege which is again what I'm saying oh yeah okay about rest and stuff like we have made a world where people can't rest they can't stop working and I'm the grandchild of an immigrant and it's really nice to actually now be able to have this conversation with my nan and like she's so proud of the book that I've made she's telling all her friends about it she's like yeah this is a problem that we all should be aware about and it's like in her late 80s she's now having these conversations I'm like but nan you are like the OG of like this whole reuse culture like we are Caribbean and like for sustenance sake and just like safeguarding and survival sake that's something that I think when you do come from those cultures, you inherently have. Um, But again, to the point of like having to work your ass off, that also came because of all these things. Oh God, yeah. What's your nan called? Agri. So I've got two nans, Agri and Lerma. Lerma's basically my bestie. Like we we argue a lot, but we're we're just like, I love her. (laughs) You just mentioned something there, which is a difficult kind of conversation around immigrant work ethic I was thinking and all that kind of expectation that we pile on society to try to fit into certain boxes and Mm. measure up to certain ideas of what success is and earn it and get there and Mm -hmm. talk a bit about that because that's obviously part of this isn't it I mean a hundred percent and I think it's just again like trying to strip all of that back like when I see how hard both my grandmas have worked and it's interesting because in um Jamaican culture especially we are very matriarchal like most of our families are run by women they really do run things and it's great (laughs) and um but you see them like trying to hold everybody on their shoulders and like my nan has always kind of worked with joy in her heart and that's something that I've always loved to see but I hate that she's had to work so so hard and I think a lot of people do but for their family members that also came over it's at um, different periods but it is this um what did you call it immigrant work work ethic and this expectation that you've got to work hard to do better than your parents who came here struggling and also society putting this on I don't know if it's just an immigrant thing but you do hear it often from second generation immigrants who said there was so much pressure to almost to like meet their expectations yes and and also not let them down because you've made so many and many sacrifices to come here and how um finding the right profession or whatever it is that would meet those expectations was a lot of heavy stuff no definitely and um I guess The book, for me, was the first time that I heard my nan say that she really, like, understood and liked what I was doing. (laughs) Like, it was for her, like, okay, this makes sense to me. Like, Georgina's made something that, like, everyone can kind of hold in their hands. And, like, it's an idea that even though maybe some of that language is a bit big, I can still access it and we can have a conversation around it. Because when I initially said I wanted to do um, fashion and design... The first thing was, why are you not a nurse? Why are you not doing 
that and even when I got a first class degree I told her I called her up and I was just like oh nan I got a first she was like you're that smart you could have got a first in like nursing (laughs) oh wow all right let's talk about the book so um the slow grind which came out when so initially summer 2020 um it was out for six months then and then it was reprinted October 21 we met at the Future Fabrics Expo mm-hmm. where you were signing your books mm-hmm. and everybody loves it. Yeah, I'm just a great salesperson. Uh, well done. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a collection of essays and conversations. You have um, an assistant editor. Is that the right phrase? Yeah. So assistant editor for the book was the writer Tamar Clark Brown. And it includes lots of incredible fashion people around the sustainability scene, but also not. So people that have been on this podcast, like Kimberly Jenkins, incredible. Also De Castro, um, the poet Wilson Oriyama. Yep. um, Designer Bethany Williams, but also like Ibrahim Kamara. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that was, it was hard to kind of, he wasn't even the editor of Dazed at the time then, but it was still hard to get... um, align with his schedule but because we've known each other for quite a while it was just all like can you can you figure out a time so tell us then what was the purpose in getting this group together and asking them to contribute either writing or to have these conversations what was the kind of big theme well why it's also super varied is for two reasons to make sure that it's this conversation and these subjects are accessible to like broad audiences because I don't think everybody reads the same like somebody that might read an article that has maybe a shorter um whatever it is span than someone that's okay with reading an essay might prefer the format of a conversation I think like all three formats ultimately do give you insight and the like imaginative and knowledge production and it's just more so about like making this information way more accessible than it is often but It was also about being flexible with the people that were involved because someone that might have started out saying that they're able to do an essay, like their time might have gone super packed out. So it's like, why don't we switch to this format? So it was nice to be able to like find ways that worked for others, but also, but the main reason was for accessibility. You said to me before we were recording that you're dyslexic and that the way that you read and the way that you like to consume new information is different from the way that I do. I was saying that I can't understand an audiobook, however hard I try, it doesn't go into my brain because I I learn by reading because that's just how I've been schooled, I don't know. But it's not the same for everyone. It's not the same for everyone, but like that also goes back to also why the, again, the accessibility of the book, like people that are neurodivergent, they're less likely to be able to read something from beginning to end way less likely like something that um I think about often is when I first bought the book out I had a lady from Australia email me and she said I'm Asperger's and this is the first time I was able to read a book from front to back and like that sticks with me it just reminds me when I'm feeling like oh my god why am I doing this like it actually matters to somebody could you tell us about the red type as well? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's no black or white in the book in terms of like black text on white paper. And that's just because for some people, when they are dyslexic, it's hard for them to read something because the words feel jumbled and like they're kind of coming off the page or like you read something, you forget your place. It's like a lot easier for that. But oftentimes people that are, again, neurodivergent, especially dyslexic or dyspraxic, it's easier for them to read in colour. So that's why there's like, it's flooded with purple and there's like 
yellow um, bookended pages to kind of like wake you up as soon as you open the book and annotations everywhere so that if you don't know something there's something there that you can reference to like a person a movement a theory anything essentially that enable you to kind of read it at your own pace and again make it more accessible. We mentioned some of the contributors that you worked with on the book do you want to tell us one or two insights that stood out for you? I mean an interpretation of something that I really do enjoy still reading from the book is um, a friend of mine Maisie Skidmore the writer her piece called Maslow for the Modern Age which is kind of unpacking Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, I guess for contemporary audiences essentially breathing new life into it which is nice because when I'm talking to like young people about this and trying to explain to them like at the start of this conversation we spoke about like slowing down and those type of things like what is the bottom of your pyramid? The bottom of everybody's pyramid is like safety, food, housing, all of that. We're in the middle in the UK of like a cost of living crisis. So everybody's bottom level was kind of in a bad place and it's it feels like it can, could be like ripped from under you. Just really put yourself first. Like without health, we don't have anything. Absolutely. And I mean, I was thinking about actually two things I was thinking about the biarchy of needs which is a take on the hierarchy of needs which Bethany Williams had on the wall of uh, uh, things she participated in that I saw her do in Milan but it's like what do we really need what do we really aspire to mm. and you can use that that triangle framework can't you to really I guess order the most important things in your life and we're doing it wrong yeah we've been doing it wrong for a long time and obviously there it's all like toppling over itself and that's like the image that Maisie also presents in this article of like there is no order actually in contemporary life like oh there's security like way off the the pyramid it's maybe not even in the pyramid because like work in the creative industries is so precarious so we have a lot lack of funds a lot of time and then we don't think about like relationships which to me is one of the key characteristics of success there's an essay in the book by C. Torsalanki uh she's awesome she's a fantastic writer who wrote a book about materials I think it's called why materials matter why materials matter so in this essay she writes about how disconnected we are in our consumer driven often urban present and how we shop on autopilot and we're always scrolling and she writes we disconnect from ourselves We disconnect from the world around us and we forget that it is dying. As a society, though, there is something we can try to do about this. When we live a life of greater self-awareness, we tend to consume less. And when we do consume, we do so more mindfully and with an understanding of the impact beyond ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think it is this, like trying to live your life with a planetary consciousness this what she talks about, about living beyond yourself is really important, I think, at some point in the essay, she also talks about just like going on a train and looking out and like the vastness of life and knowing that you're part, you're a small part of something bigger. And I think if we kind of just locate ourselves in that feeling often, we'll, we'll gain this like nurtured understanding in ourselves that these things are going to work regardless of whatever it is I put into it or not like the earth still turns like the sun still shines and I think for me it's just like looking at that and actually just being in that really does put some realism 
in my life. I was going to ask you if it's habit. Can we cultivate that habit? What slow habits? Um, or even just the habit of noticing and looking around. And, you know, it sounds so obvious, right? Look around and realise the continuousness of the earth, but also it's, I want to say splendour, but it's grandeur, <laughs> it's beauty. But we just not in the habit of it. No, we're not. And I think a lot about, I think it was like the second part of lockdown in 2020. And I would go for like two hour, three hour long walks. And I think a lot of us were doing the same thing. And you would just have the best conversations with people about something that maybe seems trivial now, but like the color of the sky yesterday or the amount of ducks or whatever it is that you might have seen, but like- The amount of ducks. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> the baby ducks in spring. But something's, there's something so beautiful in noticing that every day. Absolutely. And of course, again, it's obvious, but we just don't practice it. So we don't remember it, even though we know it. You do that by slowing down. Yeah, but again, like I said, I wouldn't say that the book is solely about like slowing down your body, whereas I think that is very vital and necessary. Um, but it is about slowing your thinking down. It's also about fashion's toxic nature. Let's yes. talk about that. So you mentioned when you were studying, you studied women's wear and pattern cutting mm-hmm. at LCF. You started a label. Oh, I hate talking about that. Please no. Okay. I hate it. Well, I think I also hate it because I feel like I failed. And that's why, like... Yeah. That's interesting because I was going to ask you, was it a label or was it a zine? And did it morph into something else? And does it matter what it was? Um, do you know what? Like, even <laughs> even in like my essay in the book, like when I was writing this about my experience in the industry, studying to like then working at couture brands and stuff, like... I cried so much writing that because I just felt so ashamed. And I write about shame a lot in this book. And it's interesting when I have conversations with people and like, oh my gosh, it's so honest and raw and whatever. But it was also cathartic for me. I felt like I was literally exercising a demon, (laughs) like getting something out. We don't talk, I was just thinking we do now because of Elizabeth Day's How to Fail podcast being so famous and well received. But generally speaking, we're not very good at talking about failure as a culture. It's like, no, you're meant to talk about how wonderful you are and how you mm. succeeded and you edit your career into highlights mm-hmm. that sound, make you sound impressive. That's just how it works. We just don't really talk very much about how we got there and I think that the media feeds this as well I used to work in media profiling actors at Vogue or profiling people in the arts and we might try and dig for a bit of colourful I don't know some kind of story that would give some drama but essentially what we were doing was putting them on a pedestal and saying look at them win look at them fly Mm. look at the Oscars look at the things they've got Mm. and that media feeds that beast and we don't talk very much about the reality which is that for every one of those successes there's loads of stuff that happened behind the scenes before Mm -hmm. they got there we just we just don't talk about it Mm -hmm. and I think actually that's super key to like why we have this culture that we have of like people accelerating so fast and like not feeling good in themselves and trying to attain all these random things because there's um a lack of transparency there's especially a lack of transparency in like fashion because it is always about this 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 star designer that's like a star from for this year or next year or whatever um yeah and then we're very quick to cut them down if they exactly but i 
I don't know. I think like even my dissertation, I wrote about fashion's impacts on men- the mental health of like users and those that actually are part of the system as well. I think at the time I'd just finished watching the Raf Simmons documentary about him at Dior or something like that. And Dior and I. Dior and I. And Which actually, listeners, if you haven't seen this before, a very interesting thing about it is it's only six months. So it, it, it follows us. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's just, we're just talking about speed. So he goes to Dior um, and he has to, and he brilliantly delivers this collection with his voice working with the atelier and the petit man whatever but it's only six months how could he do Mm. it it's mad it is mad and then he left not too long after that right and I remember the conversation at the time was just like why didn't he stick at it and all of that instead of there's always the onus I think on the individual rather than on the system like this this is not it's not built for people to thrive in a wellness sense like a lot of the time people are just performing success is like stunting right it's just acting like everything is all right when it's not um it's also about I think sometimes we do the best to kind of convince ourselves that it's okay fake it till you make it another mug slogan that let us down (laughs) super cheesy but that actually these things let us down they lie to us and make us feel this is what it is but I think it also like dislocates us or disconnects us from ourselves but it makes it it encourages us not to be vulnerable exactly and again like when I said that I was crying forever when I was writing that it's because I was kind of reckoning I think with feelings that I still have and did have especially like I find it actually quite difficult to read my essay in the book because it does remind me of moments where I didn't feel my best and I just kept on going and going and going and going and I think like that's also a generational characteristic I think for a lot of people. At the beginning when we were getting started you mentioned colonialism as being part of this systemic problem I want to say crisis that we've got where Mm -hmm. we're all chasing a certain kind of idea of success Mm -hmm. and it's not working it's just causing crazy stress and making people miserable would you want to talk to us about how or what sort of relationship you think colonialism has with fashion overconsumption stress I think it's also to do with um what we're talking about at the beginning about um like expectation pace and expectation and again like a lot of these production epicenters and it's unfortunate that a lot of their economies are reliant on the west and our consumption habits and i think that that's still colonialism i've been reading the book inglorious empire by sashi thao which everybody should read. I Brilliant. I heard of it. It really it's called um Inglorious Empire what the British did to India. And oh God. it's really really good. Like super comprehensive. Again, I have to read in dribs and drabs, but just talking about the incredible industry at India had and like the craftspeople and all of this before British colonial rule and how like literally people's bones were being broken and their families they were thrust into multiple famines because they had to farm for the Brits and it's just crazy to me that why are we still not awake 
to the idea that this is not how these industries should function. A good garment is where no one's had to suffer. Why don't we think about that when we're putting up something on our bodies, like all the hands it passes and yeah. So I just, I think you cannot separate colonialism from any industry. If we look at the global production system, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? But have you experienced that as a person of colour working in the industry? Does it make it worse dealing with the pressure that the industry throws on particularly young creatives trying to start out? Um, I think like the, for me, I can speak in my experience and, pro- and across industry, actually, it's just like the arts and design industries, which is unfortunate about it, is like still incredibly exclusionary. There are very few routes, like access routes into these industries. And it's still um, rely on, on like specific families that have enough money to like send their kid to a specific school and they have enough money to do an internship for free for 10 years and whatever else. It's classist as well then, isn't it? Because it's just got so many barriers to entry because you, if you think about interning at some of these supposedly glamorous places, you get paid so little that unless you happen to have some other source of income, it's really difficult to do it, which is why at so many of these kind of legacy magazines or couture houses, there's a tendency for them to be filled with posh people. whose oh, parents yeah. are like, here's some cash because you can just use our flat in Kensington, darling. No, 100%. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> From a point of view of a black person or a BPOC person, what makes it worse is that, especially when you're, you don't see yourself represented, which is the age old, whatever but when you are in these spaces and you are the only one and you like there's all these microaggressions and people like there's just outright racism and you those are the things that also completely grind you down and you still feel like this thing is for me I belong here when you're being constantly told that you don't belong um whether that's through finances whether that's through access whether that's literally outright people saying these things to you those are all things that I've experienced and I know a lot of people have experienced too and I, I just I don't want to paint the picture that everything about fashion is horrible like there is a lot of wonder and imagination and beauty um but I just I don't know how much we can prop an industry up when there's so much exploitation it looks really glamorous but it's a fantasy and actually the glamour itself is making things more difficult for the people trapped within this kind of system that makes them fear being vulnerable, fear failure, and then also the crazy pressure that the system puts on people to be working ridiculous hours, potentially interns working for no money. Um, We know all that, we know those stories, and yet we sort of say, well, you've got to do it to prove you're tough and then you can get to the top. So it's it's sort of about that, but I thought that that framing of glamour or the perceived glamour, the fantasy of glamour as being part of the problem was so interesting. Yeah, that perceived fallacy of glamour is again this like performative success because yeah. that is exactly what drives us into thinking, do you know what? I've hated it for 10 years, but mm. I'm going to get a show out of it and I'm going to love it for those five minutes until I climax and then like get down again and it's just this cycle and I was in that and I think I just came to a point and I write that in the essay where I just had to choose myself and I think that choosing yourself is where people or for me that's where I felt like I failed because it's like the system doesn't or these industries don't actually promote a choosing of yourself I saw an Instagram post the other day 
from this designer called Kenneth Izo. Oh yeah, and he's incredible. Incredible, and his post though was basically some just to summarize it was saying we're taking a step back because the industry poses way too many challenges to like make it. Um, Did he? I guess be successful or to be sustainable. I would say. At the time, I read a lot of the comments and it was like, oh no, oh no. And like, my comment back was like, brilliant for putting yourself first. Hopefully you'll get to a place where there is some sense of balance where like you can actually make a living, enjoy what you're doing and make beautiful, sustainable, exciting garments. Gosh, I mean, that, I haven't seen that post, but he's such a brilliant designer and from the outside looking in he seemed to be killing it right mm-hmm. I mean he's the one winning everything being celebrated and talked about how many people listening to this have got small labels or startup fashion businesses who feel like it's so difficult to make money it's so difficult never mind get rich so difficult to keep the doors open it is it really is and I think a lot of people do see that early on and they do buy into the hustle culture ultimately I don't know. I just feel like I'd, well, I don't want to live my life like that. It's also back to what you'd said of, and I loved how you said you're still trying to figure out what you mean by finding your way back to creative balance. But that is the job, isn't it? So what's, what is the balance? What does that look like? There's giving up and stepping back completely. That's one way, and that may be right for some people. There's burning out till you're about to drop dead, which is a stupid thing to do, but and we still do it. So what's that balance in the middle? What does that look like? It's going to be different for everyone, but that's the, mm. I guess that's the challenge. I don't think giving up is like... Challenge sounds like work. <laughs> that sounds like more stress and burnout. <laughs> I don't personally think stepping back is giving up. I'm still trying to untie all of this stuff in myself massively because, like I always say, I'm, I am not the authority on any of this stuff. Like, I'm mostly writing what I know. Like... I'm trying to read around like, you know, books like The Body Keeps the Score and When the Body Says No and like looking at the hidden cost of stress and all of these things because I want to have a life where I feel like I can recognise the lines of my body and like my thoughts as well. And that also comes by or comes comes from me like I'm bipolar. So I have to be way way more alert and aware of these things and that in itself has always been well I actually only found that out um February 2021 after I (laughs) I don't even know if I can call it burnout to be honest I think I'd been going into like an episode for a while but thought it was normal which is again the same culture because fashion makes a lot of things feel normal um like straight after I'd finished like all the sales and stuff for the book in October 2020 I then went into like a mental health hospital I didn't know that that was going to happen I mean no one knows that that was going to happen that that stuff happens but all of that like in a way really humbled me again and again and it's not nice it's it forced me to literally I couldn't do anything from about November 2020 to like May 2021 like it was hard for me to like make a cup of tea for myself. The idea of getting on the bus was like, literally would fill me with fear. And that was just cause my mind went back into a state. And again, this is what I mean about like the connection between your mind and your body. And like when you get to a place where you're able to like fool yourself into just like moving and doing and continuing so much so that you disconnect from your body. 
And I did that. I disconnected from my body and my body was trying to give me signs. So much so that I ended up in that position. But regardless of having bipolar or not, and again, that's only something I've just found out that I had, but it was, um, I guess, the culture of like climaxing and falling down and all of that stuff. It was stimulated and supported by me being in this industry, I thought that that was normal because you also see it around you. And I don't know if all those people have bipolar or not, but it felt normal. It felt like a normal response. That just made me think of there was something that you write in the book where you you tell a story of a friend saying to you that the industry is, that depression is a natural response to our culture, that the industry fosters that. Yeah, yeah. That was, I can't remember how long ago that was. I think that was when I was still studying. Um, but I th- yeah, it's like there's been so many points where it's just like, bloody hell, wake up, girl. Like, it will wake up, everybody. Mm. And yeah, when they said that to me, it's like I knew it at that point. Then I forgot it because I was like, I want to do really well and I want to have all these achievements. Then something else happens. I'm like, shoot, I need to remember this. And I think what happened over the last year or so especially within COVID, but not necessarily just the context of COVID, but then what happened to me afterwards, after I literally just brought out a book that everyone was like, this is so successful, you're on every press, this and the other. And I was in a hospital without my phone, without my family and all of that stuff. Like, I'm not saying those things have to happen in order for you to be humbled, but it it did, again put some realism into my situation Mm. and be like it's not worth it at all you have to be able to understand when where your pace is and what works for your body and what works for I guess your sustenance in Mm. general and in a community sense I think that all of those things can be applied across um, industry across role across community across function all of those things can be applied. How are you doing now? How am I doing now? I'm doing a lot better in my head, I would say. Like, I just took it... I think I just, like, I took that very seriously. But, as you, as you should. <laughs> but um, it was it was very difficult for me. Because, again, it's this... I think especially because in the Caribbean community, there aren't... Um, as widespread conversations around mental health and but my mum is super supportive my family have been incredibly supportive of me during this time and it's also been a lesson for them I think we're constantly learning about how to serve ourselves and how to like love ourselves and what that actually means and because of like the way that it's been um capitalize the whole idea of well-being and self-care and all of those things we just think it's very like we take it with a pinch of salt I think because it trivializes it but actually when it can be life and death you realize that self-care is like should be the bedrock Mm. of like daily life if you were to look at the fashion industry broadly and take yourself out of this answer what do you think the industry can do to try to foster genuine well-being? I think something that Ursula always says that I really love is like she says that whether or not you know it, you're part of the fashion system. Whether or not you know it. So I think for anyone listening or anyone that anyone that is a wearer of clothes, ultimately, like you do have some agency. Like you, I think 
brands and like in general the industry relies on the fact that they feel that people are going to continue to be passive and the more that we have conversations like this and the more that there's more the more that um, we cultivate space for transparency I think people will actually believe like wow I should actually demand more I should set specific boundaries and I don't fully believe that it should solely be the owner should solely be on the individual but I think and I really hope and I want there to be spaces and companies and like just I think frameworks where they understand like it's better for our people to be well because if they're well we're well and I don't think it's hard. I think we're making it more hard than it needs to be. Can I ask you how you practice self-care? Yes, self-care. We might. Well, these are small things that I definitely do. I take myself to the cinema. I take myself out a lot because I think it's good to learn how to be with yourself. Yeah, make opportunities for you to like laugh. If that means going on TikTok like me, then get your joy on demand. Um, it's also when I like... I try and put like a bedtime in place. It's not always successful, but we don't actually recognize that when our cortisol is like out of regulation, it's hard for us to actually stay well. Like that even relates to like weight, that relates to, um, again, sleep, that relates to our relationships, our mood, all of those things are quite regulated by our cortisol, the food that you eat, I'm trying to be a lot more mindful of those things. Also spending time with friends, being outside in nature. Um, you said boundaries before, and I'm, I'm going to add one, which is if you're feeling overwhelmed at work. And I find this hard to do, and I you know, I get it if you find it hard. But try and put some boundaries around emails that people expect you to jump to outside of office hours. It's Sunday, you don't have to do it. Yeah. But you feel you do, and yeah. it just all adds to the stress. It does. I try and, like, I've... I think because I was so schooled in this like fashion life and I was like die hard, I was just always in this in this mindset of like gotta do this quickly, gotta do this now, like you've got this thought, you have to put it out. And like even now, if I think about something, I have to email someone, it might be waking on email them, but I'll preface the top of the email, please do not reply to me until you have time on Monday or in the week or whatever just had to get this out now because I'll, I'll probably forget that's very neurodivergent of me <laughs> um but I do yeah I think just trying to um, hone real relationships is important all right you've given us some great advice and and actually is great advice because we have to start on the small things don't we and sometimes you just need to hear someone remind you of something you already know to do it but I want to finish by asking you what is the best advice you've been given on well-being and on maybe connection you could come back to people you spoke to in the book or it could be from your nan <laughs> what is that thing my nan always says i feel like everything she says to me is just shouting to be honest <laughs> like, she says something that she loves me but it's just like nan all right um but my mom she's she's whether or not she's saying it in these words, but she does talk to me about the, like, the versions of rest. So that's, like, sensory rest, which is, like, figuring out the type of lighting you want in your room when you're going to bed and deciding, like, this... And, like, that kind of sets a boundary line for you, like, turning the lights down, having something 
like pink or purple or whatever something low signals i'm going to bed now my body's going to rest deciding that you're not going to go on your phone at a specific time that's digital rest like sensory rest emotional rest like trying to have a moment of reflection or like speaking to somebody i always try and like when i have something big to say to a friend because of all these crazy mental health or whatever situations i always say do you have um the capacity to listen to what I have to say at the moment like and if not seriously no problem we'll come back to it because I also don't want to I don't want them to be pouring from an empty cup so there are seven versions of rest can't remember all of them but sensory emotional digital um and go and figure out the rest I'm gonna this has been the most beautiful conversation oh thank you very much no worries (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.